Thanks, team. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Today we're starting a journey now through Romans where Paul gets to the heart and the, the motivation for writing this letter to the Romans, which is to explain what the gospel of God is. And it starts here in verse 18 and it goes all the way through to chapter 15, through the middle of chapter 15. And, and the theme is the gospel of God and it's a complex, big theme. There's so many parts to it and yet it's just, it's very simple. It's not impossible to understand. In fact, it's very simple to understand. And so we're starting in verses 18, and we're, we're going to look at verses 18 through 20 today. And Paul says, as he starts off, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men, women, are without excuse. This morning, we're not going to jump into the theme of the wrath of God because it plays out all the way through the rest of chapter 1. Uh, we're going to talk first about this idea that God is in plain sight, that you can see God from what has been made. And we're going to kind of explore this, and it's a cerebral message. It's, it's a lot like last week where it's going to require way more of an intellectual engagement and trying to understand concepts and things. And um, I'm not great at science. I'm not. I've never been accused of being a scientist ever or, or being scientific for that matter. Um, so this message I've borrowed heavily from two different guys, two different preachers. One's Joel Smith, and the other one is Lee Strobel. And you may have heard of Lee Strobel. He's written a number of books, and one of them's called the case for the creator. And I, I just want to give credit to them because they've done all the work on this and, and I'm borrowing from them in many ways. So as we begin this, I, I want to just obviously acknowledge what's going on with most of your students in the room. If you're in fifth grade and then all the way up through junior high and high school, even into college, you are constantly barraged by this one, I would say, statement assertion it's a theory that many would say it's fact but it's it's not fact or they would say no no it's a theory but they teach as a fact and, and it's what darwinism taught regarding macroevolution and not microevolution microevolution can be seen within species where you see uh, species change like a breed of dogs you can see the species within dogs change over time as they interbreed and everything or cats or whatever pet or you see out there so it's not microevolution we're talking about but macroevolution big picture evolution and darwin what he claimed was that macroevolution is this that all creatures have a common ancestor, and that natural selection acting on random variation can explain how fish became amphibians, which became reptiles, which became birds, and then mammals. So macroevolution starts with a single organism, and it explains where everything else came from, that, that single organism. And if Darwinism is true, a professor at the University of Cornell made this statement about, about this. He says, if Darwinism is true, then these five things uh, you can logically deduce from that. One, there is no evidence of God. Two, there is no life after death. Three, there's no absolute foundation for moral right or, or for right or wrong. 
There's no ultimate meaning for life, and people don't really have a free will. It's just predetermined. That's the essence of Darwinism, and that's where Darwinism leads. And you students encounter this all the time. And what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of move through several ways to understand how you can, with a sound mind and and logical thinking, come to an understanding that there is a God as you look at science and creation and you look at this universe. And the first thing to look at is really the obvious one, and it's the fossil record. Darwin lived over 100 years, years ago, and the scientific community has had 100 years to test this theory that Darwin poses about macroevolution. And the problem they're running into is, as you look at the fossil record, nearly the 40 phyla that represent the animal kingdom, or all the, all the kingdoms, right, the highest level, uh, as you would say, the category in the animal kingdom, they all virtually came on the scene at the same time with their full, I would say, unique body plans, fully formed with no transitory fossils on the record. Nothing in between. They call it the Cambrian explosion. We would look at Genesis and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I can't remember, but the fourth or fifth day, God created every living thing, and they what? Exploded onto the scene. But it's a real problem because if, if you really believe in Darwinism, you believe in macroevolution, which starts with a single cell little organism that in transitions through macroevolution all the way to us. Goo becomes you, that kind of a thing, right? Well, and you should be able to see it. The problem is it's not in the fossil record. It's just not there, those transitions. It explodes on the scene. The other problem with this, as you look at Darwinism, is the naturalistic processes fail. There is no explanation yet how a non-living chemical can somehow assemble itself or chemicals assemble themselves to become living. It violates, actually, a law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics, which says anything, any system left to itself will, will tend towards entropy or degeneration or devolution, however you are, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but it goes towards chaos. It doesn't go towards order. And that naturalistic processes has yet, it, it's not just like a hurdle, it's an insurmountable barrier After a hundred years since Darwinism, they still cannot go through that barrier because it's impossible. No wonder two years ago, and and what's happened in the last hundred years, and we've seen this, is the scientific community has gotten a stranglehold on the narrative of how the origins of the earth started and the universe. And it's a stranglehold, and you can lose your job if you even come out against Darwinism. They own it. They own the museums. They own everything, right? This teaching and this thinking. Two years ago, a hundred scientists took out an article in a major newspaper, and the title of it was Descent from Darwinism. And they signed their name to it. 
And since that time, in fact, you could Google it on your phone right now, Descent from Darwinism, the, the, the list is up to 700 now professors from universities. And, and we're talking, I mean, you just go through this. They sign their name, they sign their degree, and they sign the, the college they're at. You got MIT, uh, you got Piedmont, Princeton, uh, University of California, you've got Berkeley, um, got Pittsburgh, the University of Ohio State, um, <clears throat> which won yesterday and the university up north didn't um, win at all. Um, you got uh, Princeton, North Carolina, uh, I don't know, you got Bristol, you got University of, of Texas, Texas A&M, uh, Clemson. You go through this and it's all the major schools. And you have PhD in physiology, PhD in physics, PhD in mathematics, PhD in chemical and biochemical engineering, PhD in molecular, molecular and cell biology, PhD in chemistry, PhD in electrical engineering, PhD in bioengineering. I mean, it's just the list goes on. These are not like people with their heads in the sand. These are scientists, and they're saying this. That the, the direct quote is this. We are skeptical, which is a nice way of saying it, it's wrong, but we are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexities of life. Now, this isn't faith versus science. This is science versus science. You don't have to check your brains at the door to be a Christian. God is in plain sight. He is. If you want to check out this list, it, it, it's up here, or just get on your phone and Google it. You'll see it. Um, it's powerful. You read that stuff and go, oh my, I didn't know like all these people think this because it's what? Romans 1.18 says they suppress it. They suppress it, and it's still being suppressed today. We still feel that. You can't talk about this. You got to bury this. Shame on you for even thinking this. But it's not just that Darwin is wrong. It, it's that the evidence of the universe has this compelling message that there is someone, something, if you want to just talk from a scientific view, something, an uncaused causer, right? And, and we as Christians would say the, the creator. And there's two, there's a number of ways you can go at this, and we're just going to take two. We don't have time for all these, obviously. But one is a cosmological argument. And, and this simply states this, that there is a cause or a creator. It's the idea of you walking out of here and you go across the parking lot and you see somebody's watch there. You don't automatically conclude right there, oh, that, walk, that watch just like came out of nowhere, right? Poof, it's right there. It, it doesn't work that way. You look at that watch and you go, somebody made that watch. And you look at the back and you go, oh, China made it, right? I mean, <laughs> but somebody made it. No one ever thinks that that watch just happened to just appear out of nowhere. Well, that watch is complex. Imagine the complexities of this universe. And you stumble across this universe, you wouldn't go, wow, that just appeared out of nowhere. It's impossible. There has to be something that caused this universe. And so cosmological argument goes like this. Premise number one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise number two is the universe began to exist. And for centuries, it's interesting, science concluded or just kind of assumed that the universe had been here for eternity. It's been here forever. 
but it's only in the past decades science has actually proven that there is, or discovering as they look at the evidence, and the evidence is pointing towards this, that there is a beginning. There's a beginning of matter, and there's a beginning of time. Our universe has a beginning, and guess how they describe it? As an explosion of light. Huh. Well, that sounds familiar. Day one, what did God say? Let there be... Yeah. They call that the Big Bang, which I'm okay with it because that's a pretty big bang, right? And that light is still going out. Stephen Hawking, I think pretty well known, he says this, virtually every scientist now concedes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at some point in the past. He's not known for being a Christian. So if the universe began to exist, premise number three, the universe had a cause. Somebody, something caused it to start. Now, this is going to be a little bit more technical. It might hurt your brain a little bit more, but try to, try to follow with me. Nature cannot cause itself to begin. What do I mean by that? Well, that means you and I did not cause our mom, right, to have us. That's impossible because we didn't exist. We weren't around. We can't cause something that we weren't even there for. Nature cannot cause itself to exist. So then logically, follow this down. If nature can't cause itself, then something outside of what we see in the universe has to have caused it. So it has to be something that is timeless because what happened was time was started. So something that is timeless has to start time. Something that is spaceless, something that is immaterial, has to start that which now takes up space or that which now has material, right? Material can't create itself. Something that is immaterial must create it. Does that make sense? Hurting your brain, kind of thinking, following the logic. Logic number two is this. It has to be powerful, when you think about the start of the universe, which you're saying the universe had a start, whatever caused this had to be powerful enough to create the entire known universe that we know. That's a lot of power. And, and Paul writes, since the beginning, God's invisible qualities, his eternal, timeless power, Right, His divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Scientists who, who are still atheists would say there's an uncaused causer. We would look at this and say, no, it, this is the creator who caused this, God. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, there's a, a physicist who was actually working on the evidence, helping discover the evidence for the universe's beginning. He won a Nobel Prize for his work on this. This is what he wrote. The best data we have concerning the origin of the universe are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. They gave him a Nobel Prize. And he's saying... It was here all along. 
the universe began with a shower of photons, light. Genesis 1-3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is what cosmology, the, the argument of the cosmological argument leads you towards is it had to have a beginning, and that beginning had to be outside of time, matter, space, and it had to be all-powerful, which leads you to conclude, it leads you up to this point. And, and what's interesting is as you start to think about the other conclusion, it has to be personal because an impersonal force never initiates. Gravity is a force. Gravity doesn't initiate anything. Gravity doesn't even think. Force does not do anything, anything outside of that which it does. It will not initiate a change or something new. It has to be something that is personal that has a thought that we're going to do something different. We're going to do something new. So now you're talking about a personal agent that caused this. Not just impersonal, not just a force. Logic leads you that way. And some would say, you know, no, well, you know, how does that happen? Okay, so, uh, you know, if God's over there, like, saying, if you're saying all this about God, well, then how did God you know, exists, and how does that all work? Well, the, the argument isn't whatever exists has a, a cause. The argument is whatever begins to exist must have a cause, and God's eternal. There is no beginning. There's no end. He's beyond time. The other argument is, is this big word that we never use, teleological. Everybody say that with me. Here's a big word. We all can feel better about ourselves. We've just said a big word. I do. I try to say it a couple times a day. Uh, teleological, right? It's called fine-tuning is another word, meaning this, this earth, this universe is so precisely made that it begs for a designer, a grand designer, teleological. And so what this means is you start to look at the universe and those things that are finely tuned and, and, and understand those things and explore those things. And as you do, you begin to realize, wait, wait a minute, the, the chances of this happening are impossible. Absolutely impossible. The scientists kind of say there's around 28, 30, 32 different precise parameters required for life to be sustained in this universe. One of them's gravity. Gravity is a, a very precise thing. We don't even think about it, but if, if gravity gets off on its tuning, life stops as we know it. So uh, we're, we're gonna need some help here. So I, I need you, Barry. You gotta do this side. You're, you're licensed with this thing. Jerry, need you on this side. Stretch it out on this side. Okay, this is just a, a good old 100 yards of uh, measuring tape. Go to that door over there. You go to this door and then make it tight so everybody can see it. Let's see uh, how good they are with construction. That's good. That's good right there, Barry. You don't have to go all the way out the door. You can, you can come back. Hey, good job, guys. All right. So imagine this ruler right here, okay? And we got about, how many feet do we got? 60, 50? 75. All right. Um, 75 feet. And imagine I told you to get gravity right, you had to come up here and pick the perfect inch. You only get one chance. You got to pick the perfect inch. And if you don't pick the perfect inch, life stops no pressure, we all die, all right? So you got to come up here and, and pick the perfect inch. 
The problem is, I haven't told you the whole thing, this ruler goes beyond just our church and these 75 feet. It goes beyond the state of Ohio. It actually goes all the way to the moon and, and past the moon and past the sun and past the Milky Way and actually to the other side of the universe. And then this side goes to the other side of the universe. It stretches across the universe. That's how long the measuring tape is for gravity. And you get one chance to pick one inch on that ruler that spans the universe. Go do it, Sparky. That's it. You've got one inch. That's how finely tuned gravity is. It goes off in any direction, one way or the other, and life stops. So thanks, guys. Golf cut for these guys. Good job. That's good. No practice even. That was Marty, you're great. Uh, here, here's another one, the cosmological constant which I've heard of gravity. We've all heard of this one. I don't know whether you've heard of this one. I didn't know anything about this one. The cosmological constant has to do specifically with, with this idea of energy and the density of it, the energy density of space, right? So if it gets off and goes too, too high or too much or too large, the universe explodes. If it goes the other way, it folds in on itself and caves in, as it were. And, and the energy constant, or you would say the cosmological constant, is so precise that you have to be, you measure it to one in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion degrees. If you're off by just that much, the universe will either explode or collapse. That's how finely tuned this universe is. And if it doesn't happen, there is no universe. Now, if you added just the idea of gravity and the cosmological constant of energy together and say, what are the chances of those two both being finely tuned at the same time? It's one in a hundred million, trillion, 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 trillion. They don't even have a number for it. it the precision it's beyond our ability to think. Watch this clip. Back in the days of Charles Darwin, relatively little was known about the complexity, the enormous complexity of the microscopic world, the microscopic aspect of, of living organisms. Uh, there was a view that uh, in the 19th, the latter part of the 19th century, that a living cell was essentially a featureless bag of enzymes. Not much uh, in, in the way of uh, detailed uh, three-dimensional complexity. Um, but of course, in the 20th century, we've made enormous strides in understanding that that's not the case at all. There is a very great degree of intricacy of architecture down in the cell units. So today, everybody understands uh, about bits and bytes. And so perhaps a useful illustration there of the uh, complexity, let's say, DNA molecules might be helpful. You can calculate the number of bits contained in tightly packed um, uh, DNA material, let's say, that would fill one cubic millimeter of space. And it's equal to 1.9 times 10 to the 18th power bits. Now, that number is, by many orders of magnitude, vastly greater than the storage capacity 
of the largest uh, computing machines that we have, the uh, supercomputing machines, their storage capacity per cubic millimeter is far less than the information storage capacity in the, uh, in the DNA model. Now, moreover, the DNA itself, as it functions in a living cell, has about a hundred different proteins involved with just its own functioning. And uh, then you have these tens of thousands of other proteins in the rest of the, of the living uh, uh, cell also involved. So we have now a picture of immense cell microscopic complexity. And so no longer is it a reasonable proposition to think that simple chemical events could have any chance at all to generate the kind of complexity that we see in the very simplest living organism. So uh, we have not the slightest chance of a chemical evolutionary origin or even the simplest uh, of cells now, with, uh, with the new knowledge that's accumulated in this century. This guy wrote a book uh, called um, Biochemical Predestination. He was an atheist, and he was out to prove that there is no way the, the universe was created. There's no way. It was, it's all Darwin. It's all macroevolution, that whole thing. Went out to prove it and ended up at the end of his research and study, going around, he actually became a Christian, and he went around renouncing. He actually came public, which scientists, who does that, comes forward and actually publicly renounced his book and said, I was wrong. This is happening. This guy's at San Francisco State, I think. I mean, this is happening, folks. God is in plain sight if people want to see him. His story is the same as uh, Francis, the guy we, we sh showed at the beginning. The, the more scientists appear, uh, look into telescopes, look into microscopes, they're concluding that there are unmistakable fingerprints of a great watchmaker, a great designer. There's a, another story of, uh, this is a Georgetown professor Harvard educated, he was an atheist, uh, Patrick Glenn, and he actually journeyed from atheism to belief because he saw the data, and in his book, God, the Evidence, he writes that today the concrete data points strongly in the direction of the God hypothesis. Those who wish to oppose it have no testable theory to marshal, only speculations about unseen universes spun from fertile imaginations. Ironically, the picture of the universe given to us by the most advanced 20th century science is closer in spirit to the vision presented in the book of Genesis than anything offered by science since Copernicus. In other words, science, when done right, points towards God. And more and more scientists are coming to that conclusion. He's in plain sight. And Darwin was wrong, which means there is a God. If Darwin is wrong, which the science proves this and points towards this, there is life after death. There is absolute right and wrong. There is ultimate meaning in life. And there is such a thing as free will. If you're a spiritual seeker, we're going to spend some time here in the next few moments just worshiping God. And if you're a spiritual seeker and you still don't know where you fall out on this stuff, I want to encourage you to, to read what's out there, to, to study what's out there, because it's amazing. You can see the evidence, and the evidence points to this idea that there is a God, and the good news about God is not only is that he's this 
powerful, timeless, eternal creator, but he also knows you, and he loves you, and he wants to have a, a personal relationship with you. And if you're a Christian this morning, and you're hearing this, and uh, I hope it invites you to celebrate the fact that God is in plain sight. And we live in a, a culture and a day and time that's no different than Paul's. It suppresses this. And we live under that suppression. And it beats us down and it says, don't say anything. Don't talk about it. Don't believe it. You're a fool for thinking this. You've checked your brain at the right. All of this stuff that keeps saying don't, don't, don't. And it's hard to push through that. And yet God is in plain sight. And I think what God would have happen here over these next few minutes is, is for that to just stop, that not to have influence on us and for us to just see him clearly and worship him. I invite the team to come up at this time. Colossians chapter one says this, for everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, invisible Everything got started in him, and everything finds its purpose in him. Psalm 102 says, In the beginning, God, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Psalm 139 says, I, I praise you, God. You created my inmost being. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know them full, full well. Let's just praise our Creator.